Thank you for everyone who sets this up. Can you guys give them a round of applause? I will get off this soapbox when I have no longer a need to stand on. If you, if you don't love that type of music, that's okay, right? A couple weeks ago we had a throwback Sunday. I like that, that was fun. And everyone sang well. And maybe some of the younger people don't like that type of music. It doesn't matter. You know what matters? When you go and you say thank you. Because they worked hard to put this together. I want to give you a challenge. This is, this is apropos of nothing of my sermon today. Well, maybe I can work it in, but I won't try and do that fancy footwork on the fly. I want you to just say thank you to those who play the music and who do the music, even if it's not your type of music. So if we do a throwback Sunday, I want the young people to come and say, thank you, Dave. That was awesome, because it was awesome. That was awesome. Yes. more traditionalist, you're smiling, because I want to hear louder claps on this one, because today you get to do your good deed. Come and say thank you to the musicians who did this more contemporary kind of praise musician, uh, music this morning. Don't let anything like this ever cause disunity. Thank you, musicians. That was wonderful. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Just hold your place there. If you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with us. Lord, we're so grateful that we know you. It's a privilege to know you. It's a greater privilege to learn more about you, to do so in safety and security. So, Lord, we are privileged to know you and to know of your power, to know of your grace, and to know of your, your love, and to know of your Son, and to know of salvation. And it is a wonderful privilege that we're just so grateful for this morning. But Lord, we know that many today are hurting, many here today, maybe some have lost loved ones, loved ones who have lost possessions. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them in the midst of this time. I pray that you would show us how we might serve them. Lord, I pray that you would bring justice to a very unjust place. Lord, what we saw this past week on the island of Haiti is the sin of many impacting millions. The sin of you impacting millions. 
communities. Those who have allowed an island to deteriorate politically, socially, economically to this point has led to this. God, we're so fortunate here in the United States where large hurricanes like that can, can hit our buildings and Lord, they don't destroy. But when they hit a place like that, it destroys them. God, I know every person in here wants to see this resolved. It's not enough, Lord God, that, that we give water this one time or a, or a tent this one time or food just this one time. Lord, you have to completely change that country. Only you can do that. God, make us care about that country. So many of us here, Lord, have loved ones in that country. So many of us here have loved ones here who have loved ones in that country. And that should be it. Lord, let your light shine through the church. Let us be salt in Haiti. Let us be light in Haiti. Lord, don't let government solve this. Government's going to solve it. your people. God, let us put hope in your word and in your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're at the end of our Beatitudes. We've completed those. So Jesus has, has just completed his list of Beatitudes. And he's now entering into his preamble of the sermon. It's going to give us a preliminary introduction to what is coming in the sermon. Our text this morning is that preamble. And something has to be established at the outset before we begin to read this sermon, and it is this. It is true that unless we are a certain type of people, namely the new creations of God in Christ, then what Jesus is about to preach is utterly impossible. Jesus is going to teach a strong sermon. He is going to lay out his new teaching. He is going to lay out a new faith. A faith of the heart. A faith for new creatures. And not a list of moral requirements. Our text today is that preamble. It announces an ontological truth. That means a truth about our being. That's what the word ontological means. It announces an ontological truth with an ethical and religious responsibility. Namely, that those who belong to God are now salt and light. If you are a believer, you are now salt and light. This is not an option. And our salt and light must not be wasted. So it's a reality. You are salt and light. And it's a responsibility. Don't waste it. This passage this morning is an announcement that those who follow Jesus must now manifest a righteousness on the inside and outside. And not merely a righteousness that receives praise from men. Look at our text. Jesus says, you, to his disciples, remember he's speaking to his disciples, though there are crowds there, he and his disciples are on the mountain, he is teaching them, and here's what he says to his disciples, you 
are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And if it gives light to all in the house, and in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Stephanie and I are in desperate need of an electrician. I spoke with Herman, our electrician here at the church. We've got a couple electrical problems. One of the major problems is that we have a ballast that's out in our kitchen. So you can turn it on and the light flickers and flickers. It doesn't really give a lot of light. So I have to turn on uh, a couple of the secondary lights in our kitchen. The, the light that comes out from underneath the microwave and the light that comes out from underneath the cabinets. I have to turn on those lights when I cook. Yes, I said I cook. <laughs> young guys, let me just tell you, you marrying a young lady, you better learn how to cook. <laughs> But the, the light doesn't work. It, it flickers on and off. And it's utterly useless to have a light that doesn't work. And this past week, we all went out and we all panicked and we all brought, bought preparations for the hurricanes. We bought, you know, dozens of cases of water and we bought flashlights and we bought foods that, that could be preserved in cans through, through their sodium content. Why are you laughing? That's why you buy them. Because when the lights, when the electricity goes out, you're in utter darkness, and you lose your refrigerator, which is our way of maintaining food, and so the only thing to give you some kind of light and to see your way in the darkness is you got to have flashlights, little, little lights in darkness, and you got to have food that's preserved in salt. Otherwise, the food's just not going to keep in your refrigerator, so you've got to throw it all out, only to realize that on Friday, the hurricane never came, and so you just wasted that safe. But we needed light, and we needed salt. We needed light for darkness, and we needed salt for preservation. Now, the question this morning is, what good are lamps that don't light, and salt that doesn't have saltiness? Or you just live this experience. You know the frustration when you go in the middle of, of a night. It, it, it doesn't matter when the lights go out in the middle of the night, the power goes out. Nothing matters at that point with a flashlight because you can't do anything until you get light. And you don't realize how important light is until you don't have it. And so we all get this in principle. It's a, it's a very simple principle. What good is a light that doesn't illuminate? You know the frustration firsthand. What good is salt that doesn't have saltiness, that doesn't have taste, and that doesn't preserve? Both of those things are useless. And that's really what Jesus is saying about a faith that doesn't have good works. Without either salt or light, 
Our world is nothing but darkness and decay. The church, though, is God's source of salt and light to our dark and decaying world. It is his ultimate purifying agent by which he saves off every kind of corruption. This morning, I want to explain and apply Jesus' teaching on the works of the Christian life. Here's the proposition I want to make and I want to defend this morning, namely this. God has created us, that is believers, to purify corruption and to guide the world into truth. This is our focus this morning. God has created us to purify corruption and to guide the world into truth. First things first, we have to establish at the outset of this sermon, is that good works are not optional for the believer. In other words, just as salt always salts and light always lights, Christians must always be about the business of good works. There is no time off from this occupation. I've heard some people at the end of their lives and when they're tired with the church say things like, I've done my time. As if being a Christian is a prison sentence. But Jesus says God has made us something new. He's given us a privilege to be salt and light to the world. And so there's never a time where this is not our prerogative. John Stott has rightly said that being salt and light is our Christian vocation. You know what the word vocation means? It means calling. It is a call to a task. It is not simply occupation. That's what you do to put food on your table. But your vocation is what you are called to do. It's what you're put on this earth to do. And Jesus is saying you are put on this earth to be salt and light to a dark and decaying world. And that's what we're here for. And you might want to ask the question, if heaven is real, how come God just doesn't take us right away? It sounds like it's going to be much, much better than this world. At the very least, we can argue a lot about what heaven will be. But the one thing we can't argue about is it's going to be much, much better, indescribably better than this world. That's a point we're not going to argue on. We, as thought continues to say, Believers, Christians, must not fail the world they are called to serve. We must be salt and light. This morning, before we even look at our passage, let's clear this, let's clear this rubble here. There is no option if you're a believer, you are salt and light. Point number one. Christians are God's creation for good works. Implicit in Jesus' words is that his disciples are characterized by good works. He says, you are salt and you are light. He doesn't say you should be salt or that it would be a good idea to be salt and light or that this is optional to be salt and light. He says, you are salt and light. You're already this thing that you're believing. If you are one of Jesus' disciples, you are salt and light. He is speaking specifically to Christians 
and their role in the world. He says that they, that is the world, may see your good works. That they, that is the world, may give glory to your, that is believer, Father in heaven. These are all indicators that Christ is speaking about the new nature that believers have received by faith in Christ. But a lot of us want to make Christianity about intellectual assent. I spoke with someone just recently, just yesterday. I said, are you, he said something about the Lord. I said, are you a, a Christian? He said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I said, excellent. I said, well, what church do you attend? He said, oh no, I don't attend church. He said, very matter of fact, no, no, I don't, I don't attend church. I just believe in Jesus. And we have separated our intellectual knowledge that, that Jesus is Lord from the feet of our faith. James says this is worthless. What good is it for you to say to someone, go and, and be clothed and not put clothes on their back? That this word that we throw around so flippantly like belief and faith and Christian has to have feet. It has to have saltiness. There has to be light there. Otherwise, it's useless to both God and the world. Point number one, Christians are God's creation for good works. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 20 and 24. He says, this is not the way you have learned about Christ. So Paul's going to encapsulate the entire teaching of Jesus in the following words. Here's what the teaching of Jesus is. And then we get bogged down in, in all of the, in all of the, the books and the, the, the gospels and the words. But here's the, the central teaching of Jesus. It's this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus' teachings boil down to this simple, this simple axiom. The old self has died, the new self lives. But the new self is created in the image of God, and that image is true righteousness and holiness. That means the faith of our mouth has feet. It works. It does good. The great confessions of the Reformed faith, the Belgian Confession, the Westminster Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, as well as many others, all make a distinction between faith of our mouth and in our mind and faith, real faith, that lives and works and has applicability in this life. The Belgian Confession says it best. It says this, Therefore it is impossible that this holy faith, which we say we have, can be unfruitful in man. It is impossible to be saved and there not be fruit. It is like saying I'm a lemon tree and I don't produce lemons. 
It's like saying I'm salt and I'm not salty. It's like saying I'm light and no one sees my illumination. The Belgian Confession says it very simply. It's impossible that a real faith be unfruitful. This faith called in Scripture, is a faith that works by love, which excites man to practice those works which God has commanded in His Word. Our good works, says the Westminster Confession in Article 16.2, are evidences of a true and lively faith. Here's what Jesus is saying this morning. If you're really my disciples, you've been created by God to be salt and light. For the life of me, I don't know why scholars overlook Ephesians 2.10. We love Ephesians 2.8 and 9 because it talks about the gospel of grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourself and is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no man may boast. And then we finally get to verse 10, which speaks of a reality that so many of us overlook. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship. The word there means forming. He has molded us. He has formed us. He has made us new. And in our baptism, when we're baptized, your baptism doesn't save you, but it indicates you're saved. You're saying to the world, I'm a new creature. I've been, God's workmanship is forming me to be a new person. Ephesians 2.10 says we are His workmanship, created to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. What are we doing with our lives if we've lost our saltiness and we hide our light under a basket? What good are you to your neighbor? What good are you to your family if no one knows you're saved? What good are you if no one ever tastes the saltiness of this beautiful gospel of grace in Jesus Christ because you're so excited to share it? What good are you and I to this world if we fail to give light direction and get them on straight paths. God hasn't just created us unto good works, but He has created us unto good works for His glory. In verse 16 it says that when they see your light, when they see your good deeds, and clearly that's what salt and light refer to in our passage, good deeds, when they see your salt, when they see your light, men will glorify your Father, which is in heaven. I wonder if we really want that person across the street to glorify our Father in heaven. You say, of course I do. I don't want them not to glorify my Father in heaven. But the question is, what action are you taking to be salt and to be light? So just like saving faith without new creation is impossible, so too is new creation without good works. 
We stick too much on the faith of our mouths and not enough on the faith of our feet. Jesus has made us to be salt and light. Let's talk then about what salt does and what light does. Number one, salt corrects. Salt's job is to correct. Light's job is to direct. Salt corrects. What good is salt without haste? Says Jesus. In that day in Palestine, they had a, an abundance, just like today, they have an abundance of salt because the Dead Sea is the saltiest place on earth. There's all kinds of health spas today that you can go to the Dead Sea and you can just go lay out in their waters. It's beautiful, beautiful terrain. It's in the middle of a, of a desert, but there's this beautiful oasis. And you can go lay in this, this dead salt. I think the, the average ocean is something like 3 to 6% saltiness. That's 23 to 30, something like 25 to 30% saltiness in that ocean, in that sea. You can go sit in it, lay in it. You cannot, one person said it's impossible to sink or to drown in that ocean, in that sea. You can't. You just float in it. So they had an abundance of salt. And around the outside, some of those salt crystals would fossilize and they would become corrupt with other contaminants and they would lose the top layer, would lose its saltiness. It would lose its value to the people who lived in that time. Salt had two, it has a lot of usage, but in those days, it has two major usages that we still have and we still use today. Number one, it gives taste, but number two, it preserves. Salt has the ability to stop or slow, very, very slowly, slow the decay of meat. And so in an agriculture, that when, when the crops aren't coming, but, but the fish are fish, they're swimming, and you're having a good season of fishing, you've got to be able to preserve that meat. You catch 100 fish, you're not going to eat all of those in one day. So they would use salt to preserve. It would slow the decay down of their food. So salt prevents decay. Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. This means our job is to prevent the decay of this world that is God's creation. You say this world's going, I hear Christians say this all the time, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, we'll reach down and try and pull that sucker out of hell. But what are you doing with your life if you're not trying to stave off corruption? Sometimes we act as spectators as the train of this world tunnels to a sudden doom. Sudden and certain doom. Jesus is your salt. You have to save off this corruption. What does it mean? It means we correct the religious person who posits that there are many gods or gods with other names or that God is the universe or that God creates and forgets his creation. We correct that way of thinking because that is erroneous. It means we say no to the philosopher who posits that reality is merely physical or that meaning can be found in principles rather than in a person. It is absolutely, fundamentally impossible for there to be any meaning in life without a creator who gives this life meaning. Each and every one of you then act as your own God, declaring that your life is the one that has meaning. But the philosopher of this world is trying to tell us and teach us today that there's no God. The question then is, where is meaning going to be found? How will we find meaning? 
If there's no God, there's no judge between the two of us. And your way is just as valid as mine. And that is postmodern thinking. We have to correct that. College student, correct that. Facebook fan, correct that. Don't let that go on. Do you know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in mankind? And the two hands that were the bloodiest were Nazism and Communism, two fundamentally atheistic worldviews? You think it's a mistake that hundreds of people died in this century at the hands of someone who says there's no God and therefore there is no meaning in life? What difference does it make to pull an old man from his farm that he and his family have had for centuries and put him in front of a wall and blow his brains out if he's not created in the image of God? This is that serious. Jesus is saying if you don't correct it, you are a useless piece of salt. It means to the ethicist who posits that morality is relative or that it's based in my happiness or that the ethical thing to do is always that which produces the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. Then we say to that ethicist, no, there are absolute standards of truth that bind you and me regardless of your culture. We say to the biologist who says that humans are nothing more than matter in motion and that life is nothing more than blind, pitiless indifference and that man is nothing more than accidental result of time plus chance plus matter. We say no. And whether you believe that evolution is what got us to where we are today or whether you believe, like the Bible tells us, that we were formed from the earth, that's not... The problem with the biologist, the problem with the biologist is that he's saying, you are an accident. The evolutionist, evolution is not the problem we should be arguing about. It's the naturalism behind the evolution. It's the idea that someone could say, you and I are accidents. That this occurrence is mere chance of just time, plus chance, plus matter. We have to correct that way of thinking. Otherwise, the dignity of being made in the image of God is going to be gone. We say to the sociologist who is trying to redefine the family and sexuality that no, God made man and woman in his image and made them to be fruitful and multiply. He made one man, he made one woman, and to distort this is going Christians, speak up. You say, well, how do we do it? Start in the chat rooms. You have more influence in this world today than you have ever had through social media. Stop worrying about the consequences of speaking the truth. And when you speak that truth, you speak it in love. But speak it nonetheless. Be salt. Or the politician who promotes greed and injustice or who wages war for economic gain, or who exploits the poor, or who does not protect his people. Say no to that. Maybe on a personal level, you have to be salt to the friend who thinks that alcohol or drugs are 
the answer. The friend who thinks the meaning of life is to have more and more novelty in sexual experience. Believer, you are only beneficial to this world when you correct its decay. Be salt. Should our salt be lost, Jesus says? Should our light be hidden? What good is it? We must confront and correct. So not only does salt correct, but light directs. We must act as the world's gentle guide confronting the world and its sin. Yes, of course we should confront sin, but if we leave it there, and if all we've ever done is help someone get off of alcohol and not led them to Jesus, we send a sober man to the devil's hell. What good is it to feed for a day and fill a belly if that belly goes to the devil's hell because we fail to be light? Don't just correct. We're not the moral nannies of the world, grabbing every sinner by their ear and smacking them on the hands whenever they do wrong. No, we are also light. And we give direction. So if salt corrects, then light directs. Salt and light equals Christian righteousness. And Christian righteousness equals obedience to the commands of Jesus. And obedience to the commands of Jesus means that obedience begins in the heart. And that that obedience is to be lived out in real direction to the world. Think about this opportunity you have to say to every person, when you correct their misguided ways, you know, there is one who can be the answer to all of your problems. If you will make Jesus Lord of your life, if you will receive Him as your Savior, all of the hopelessness that you feel right now, Jesus is greater than that. Paul told the church in Thessalonica when they were hopeless in the loss of life of some of their fellow believers, he said, don't grieve like those who don't have hope. Because even when the greatest trial that will face all of us, the greatest trial that will face any of us will be the death of either a loved one or ourselves. Even in the face of that, Paul says, you have hope in Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that Christ has destroyed the one who had the power of death. What can hold you down today, believer, if you have Christ? How can that bottle or that, that pill bottle or that alcohol bottle or those sexual pleasures give you real meaning? Those are fleeting. Those are going to come and they're going to go. You're going to come down from that high. You're going to get old and gross and nobody's going to want to have sex with you. <laughs> that really happens, by the way. 
Cover your children to you. You see these guys who are down on my knees? They're 65 years old and they're walking around with their hair down and their chest hair out and their wrinkles everywhere. And they're still trying to be the funds. But nobody wants to see a 65-year-old dude's wrinkles. So whatever pleasure it is in your life, and by the way, we all know what sex is. It's a shame the church doesn't talk enough about it because it's probably one of our greatest sins. Misplaced sexual desire. Even in marriage. Where we go awry. Where we assume that the spouse is just there to be my source of sexual pleasure. Because we don't talk enough about it. Because we're afraid somebody's going to be embarrassed. We're putting our hope in these things. Marriages end when one spouse no longer finds the other spouse sexy. And they can't fulfill them sexually anymore. Because the God that we made the God of our lives was sex. And when that's no longer there, we've lost our, we've lost our meaning. Our God has died, the meaning of our life has died. But when the drugs no longer get us high, when the alcohol no longer gets us drunk, when the job that we worked tirelessly for comes in and sits down at our desk and says, clean it out, we're fired. And we lose our hope. You need to be light to those people who experience these things and say, hey, listen, there's someone who loves you. All of these things you just lost, Jesus says you can have eternal life in heaven. And he's even conquered the worst of them all, death. Neither height nor depth, life nor death can take us away from that person. How do you explain a person like the Apostle Paul and the people like Peter and John as they stand before the Sanhedrin, as they're being beaten, as they're being imprisoned, they're away from their families. Peter had a family, he had a wife, he had children, and he was in prison. He was beaten for it. He was on the street constantly preaching the gospel. Why would they do that? Why would they live such miserable lives? It was because they knew where the light was. And as John says, that light is the light of men. Jesus is the light, and that light is the light of men. It's not enough if we stave off corruption and we don't give them the light and direct them to the cross. Christian, you must evangelize to a lost and dark world. Bring the light into this dark world. Tell the world that there is one who can give them hope when there is one. Therefore, where we see corruption, be salt. And where we see darkness, be light. It's that simple. This is our call this morning. This is a call to be revolutionary. Maybe you feel powerless in this world today. Do you feel the world's persecution getting greater and greater on Christians? Do you 
feel that the world is going and plummeting into further and further darkness? Do you see that? Do you sense it? You should. Watch the debate tomorrow. Is it tonight? I don't even know what it is. Because I don't care. Because I know two things about them. They may be salty, but they're not the salt of this Bible. And I know this. It doesn't matter because the politicians aren't going to be the salt that this world needs. And they're not going to be the light that this world needs. I said this morning in my Sunday school, I think I should say it here. Christian, Republican, stop worrying about who's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's not going to happen. Listen to me. It's not going to happen. You know how you start doing this? But being the parent that you need to be to a child who thinks that their only meaning in life is in sexual fulfillment from some snot-nosed boy. Grab them by their hand when that girl gets pregnant and say, no, 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 no. Abortion is not the answer. We're going to do this together. You have not ruined your life, young lady. You haven't. As one pastor has said, Jesus still loves you. I want you. You come to this church. I want all of them. I want the divorced to be in this church. I want the, I want the sexually immoral to be in this church. Because I want to say, I'll be the salt that God has required me to be. And we, this church collectively, will be the salt and the light that it's supposed to be. And we'll help you. And we'll give you that direction. You're not going to find it in politics. Don't waste your time. Neither that man nor that woman nor any other man or woman who doesn't fly under the banner of Jesus Christ can give any hope to this world. But God has given hope to the world. You're the hope of the world. I'm concerned, though, that some of us have lost our saltiness. Some of us have hidden our light under a basket. If you've done that this morning, I want to talk just really quickly about how you can be salt and light. Number one, take seriously this morning. Take seriously Jesus' warning that failure to confront and direct this dark and decaying world means that we are useless as salt is as saltless salt and covered light. Let me read that again. First thing we have to do to be saltier, to be of value to God and to this world, is to take seriously this warning that failure to confront and direct this dark and decaying world means that we are useless as saltless salt and covered light. Feel for just a moment. Remember your hurricane preparations. Imagine grabbing that flashlight in the middle of the power outage and turning it on and it doesn't illuminate. What would you do with it? You'd throw it out. If it was broken, you'd get rid of it. If you tasted salt and you realized it no longer had saltiness and it no longer preserved, you'd throw it out. Why then should God give us any next minute? 
if we're not going to be salt and light to this world. This is a serious warning. Number two, study and know the word. Know how to respond in every situation. When that person comes to you and tells you, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving my spouse, know those passages that open up the Bible. Open up your Bible to Ephesians 5 and say, no, 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 you, I don't love my wife anymore. Well, you can start. Look at what he says here. Husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. That means, husband, you can go home and serve her for the rest of your life. Well, she's miserable. So were you. So was I. But God became man and dwelt among us. Why can't you go home and love your spouse? You say they're unlovely, and so were we. What are you even talking about? Do you not understand that the gospel is a gospel of grace? God's unmerited favor upon a worthless people who have rejected Him? Go and be salt and light to your marriage and to your children. But know the word. Know how God answers the problems. Don't run into the loving arms of the lost world to answer problems they can't answer. Go to the word. Know how Jesus answers child-bearing questions. Questions of addiction. The problem with addiction is not that I have some kind of chemical imbalance in our body. It's that we think we've got another God. No scripture. Number three, pray for courage, clarity, and wisdom. I've asked this church to pray for courage, clarity, and wisdom. When I go to my pastoral prayer breakfast once a month, I ask those men the same thing. I pray for courage, clarity, and wisdom. Because I know there are times when I would rather be a coward. Some of you might rather be a coward. It's easier to be a coward. It's easier to shut up our mouths when someone speaks about our God. It's easier to not get involved in the messiness of people's lives. But pray for courage. To speak up. You say, I don't know what to say. Pray for clarity. No, say, Lord, I don't know exactly what to say, but put the words in my mouth. You did it for your disciples. You can do it for me. Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry. You've been with me. The Spirit will help you recall all that I taught you. But that's why you have to know the Word, so that the Spirit has something to work with. And then finally, pray for wisdom. Wisdom is not knowing what to say, it's knowing when to say, and when not to say, and when to say what to say, and when not to say what to say. You got that? Did everybody call Pray for wisdom. When the person loses a loved one and they say, God, why have you done this to me? That's not the time to get into theology. It's the time to put your arms around them and cry with them and say, I don't know. How can I serve? How can I help? 
That's wisdom. Lastly, we take seriously Jesus' warning, we study, we know the word, finally we pray for courage, clarity, and wisdom, and then, when the opportunity presents itself, be what God has made you to be. Salt of the earth and light of the world. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard message. It's a hard message for me. This week, you know how many times. You know every moment. The one person I can't lie to you, to in this entire world, is you. You know how many times, as I wrote this sermon, that your spirit said, you're not being softened here. You're not being light here. And so, Lord, I am not blameless. There are areas where I need to regain my saltiness and areas where I need to take the, best, the basket off of my light and let my light shine among men. God, I'm your workmanship. Everyone who has received Jesus here is your workmanship. We are the pot, and you are the potter. Mold us to be salt and light for this dark and decaying world. In this political season, Lord, let us not look to politicians, but look to Jesus, and then look to ourselves, and ask, what can we, the church, do? This neighborhood is full of violence. Our homes are full of strife. How can we be salt and light? God, all of this is for none. All of this passion, all of these words is for none. Should we, the church, fail to repeat through our faith? Embolden us by your spirit. Give us feet to our faith. Lord, help us to be what you have made us salt. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?